There were a couple times uh, during my childhood, I grew up in Texas in the Dallas metro area, but a couple of times uh, during my childhood, I lived very close to a creek of some kind and spent a lot of time in that creek. One of those was in Richardson, Texas, which is basically Dallas, Texas. It would be kind of like East Point is to Atlanta, something like that. And there was a, a creek, they called it Duck Creek, that ran right behind our house. And um, it, it, was, it was right in the middle of the city, and it was basically a big drainage ditch. And so every, all the storm sewers dumped into this creek, all the you know, runoff from everybody's pesticides and herbicides and everything, all that went in there. And it probably explains a lot about me, actually, all the time I spent in that water. Uh, yeah, watch it. Uh, I am coming back. And, um, but my friends and I, we, we walked up and down that thing and we waded in those waters uh, all the time. After school and in the summers, we'd be down there every day finding you know, crawdads and tadpoles and frogs and turtles and snakes and just all kinds of creatures and being found by leeches and all of those fun things. But it wasn't, it wasn't, a, a, it wasn't only a very big creek. It was about 6 to 12 inches deep in most places and and maybe you know three to ten feet wide depending on where you were and just barely barely moving almost stagnant uh now if there was a storm or any kind of heavy rain it would swell quickly because these big you know drink uh, sewer pipes would or uh, storm pipes would come flooding in there and so it could get 10 feet deep and 50 feet wide uh really quick uh, but we, we just thought it was the best. We were like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer out there on that little creek in the middle of Dallas. Um, and we moved to Wiley, Texas uh, when I was a little older, and we had another little creek right at the end of our street. And it was, it was only just a, it was just a few inches. It was a little spring-fed creek, uh, so nice, cold, clear water. But it was just a few inches deep. Just a couple feet wide, and unless it, you know, we had a heavy rain or something like that. But one of my favorite things to do with my friends, we were really cool. Um, but we would, we would like, we we liked building little dams in those creeks. Uh, I don't know why that was so fun, but it was a lot of fun. And so we would use, you know, just anything we could get our hands on. Obviously, dirt or rocks or sticks or there was all kinds of trash in Duck Creek. And, uh, and so we would get all that stuff together and, and try to build this little dam. And then we could create these little, little pools of, of water behind that dam where, you know, maybe it was waist deep, six-year-old waist deep. And so not, not very deep, a couple feet maybe. And, uh, and we just thought that was the best thing. It was like we had our own little swimming hole there. And so we, we could spend, we'd spend all day uh, constructing that we, what we thought was this invincible dam in this creek. And then you come out the next morning, and it would be it would be you know broken, and water's just rushing right through it, no problem. And if there was a storm or of any kind, just a small rain, I mean it would be washed away with nothing left to uh, show that there was ever anything there. But as as young kids, you know this was probably in the six to twelve age range for me. Um, we couldn't build a dam that could control that tiny little creek with the little trickle of water running through it. But just imagine me and my you know, child, childhood friends trying to build a dam to control the Mississippi River. Same, same, uh, same, same means, same uh, resources, so rocks, small rocks, sticks, trash, dirt, 
uh, you know, just using our bare hands, you know, some little shovels, that kind of thing, and trying to, trying to build a dam to, to control the Mississippi River and to back that up. I mean, it's ridiculous, that image, and, and it, it would be futile. It would be dangerous, but it's just kind of a silly thought to, to think that kids could do something like that. But in this passage that Jay read for us just a moment ago, we're going to, in, in this passage we're going to see this morning, we, we get to see proud humanity, mankind, uh, and, 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 it, and we're looking like a couple of little kids trying to tame the Mississippi River with toy shovels and Tonka trucks. I mean, this is the image. I mean, in some ways, from, from Earth's perspective, from humanity's perspective, this is, this is mankind at its best, at its strongest. Uh, this is great, and, and so united, and, and inventive, and industrious. It's this impressive picture. But we see, from heaven's perspective, from God's perspective, mankind comes off looking silly, really sinful, but... But it's like little kids playing in a creek trying to, to build a, a tiny dam thinking they've really accomplished some magnificent feat. That's the picture here. So it starts to look like, uh, in, as we read in verses 1-4, to four, it's, it, start to look, it starts to look like man is kind of master of his own fate, captain of a soul. And, and like humanity is, has taken its destiny into its own hands and might actually thwart the purpose of God. Man's strong and invincible. But in reality, this scene shows us a picture of God like we read just a moment ago in Psalm 2. And and God who sits in the heavens and He laughs. He laughs at proud man. The Lord scoffs at them. And God just effortlessly lays waste to their invincible plans. So the, the, the big idea of, of this, these verses here in, 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 in Genesis uh, chapter 11 is that, is that when, whenever people set themselves against God, God always wins. I mean, that sounds so simple, but it is, it is the bent of our hearts to buck against that truth. But whenever people set themselves against God, God Wins. And so Genesis chapter 11, the whole chapter is about the unstoppable greatness of God, greatness of His grace, the greatness of His power, and it's on clear display throughout this chapter. And so we're, we see in verses 1 to 9 that when humanity stands tall and pounds his chest and, and, and bucks against God, God just effortlessly brings him down, brings him low. We'll see that when wickedness seems to threaten God's purposes and, and disrupt His plans, that God is, no, God is faithful. He will keep His promise. We'll see that when, when people are scattered in judgment and the nations are just flung across the globe and all of these languages and all these people groups scattered around the world, what does God do? He, God, God creates a nation for Himself that will be a blessing to all nations. So God is God is doing this work. And so just think about, again, think about those first hearers. As Moses, the author of Genesis, the human author, again, he's writing. uh, This is all being revealed to him by God. This is thousands, a couple thousand years after after these events took place. And Moses is writing, and he's writing to uh, the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt and, and, and poised to go into the promised land. Think of the the both the warning and the encouragement this would have been to those first readers. 
first hearers. What a, what a, what a powerful appeal for them. To, to submit to God, submit themselves under God's mighty hand, and not to, not to be deluded into thinking that, that they, could, they could resist God, they could rebel against God and still prosper. No, you, 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 the, the Lord, Yahweh, is God and He alone. And, and the only way you can expect any kind of blessing and prosperity is if you, if you submit to Him. So that's one, that's, that's a warning. And then there's this powerful encouragement too. Here they've come out of Egypt and now they're going to be surrounded by all of these nations that are hostile against God. <coughs> and this is an encouragement to them that God's purposes will not be thwarted. Not be thwarted by His enemies. His promises to His people will be preserved. This God is their God. And, and brothers and sisters, we need this message as well. This God is our God. I mean, this is our story. And so let's, let's see. Let's behold our God at work here in this text. And so we're going to focus in on the, on the first nine verses of Genesis 11 this morning. But I, I want to give a quick overview of the rest of the chapter. And so this chapter, uh, particularly verses 10 and following, we have these genealogies. <coughs> it's sort of a bridge Remember, Genesis is, is two main sections. Genesis chapters 1 to 11, focusing on the, the kind of the early history of the earth and the beginnings of, of the earth. And then Genesis 12 to 50 is going to focus upon four key people uh, and these patriarchs, starting with Abraham. And so there's this transition here in chapter 11, and it's kind of the bridge between these two main sections. And so when we resume our study of Genesis uh, early next year, we will probably come back to chapter 11 and set this up again. But I, I want to just at least give a quick overview of the whole chapter and, 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 and see God at work here. And so verses 1 and 9, which is where we're going to focus, we'll, we'll see this story of the Tower of, of Babel. And, and so then the rest of the chapter is a genealogy. A genealogy. And now I know we think of genealogies, and I hope that you're, this, this is not how you're, how you're still thinking after we've covered a couple of these in Genesis so far. And you've heard other genealogies preach. But it's not just a list of names that's just kind of connecting some dots. And, and we can just kind of, you know, whatever. Uh, name, 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 I can't pronounce. And skip over it. And then we go on to the next thing. That's not it. No, this, this, these genealogies are meant to speak hope. They're communicating, they're communicating a, a word of hope both to the original hearers and, and also to us. And so just think about what this, these genealogies are communicating here. One that we're going to see in verses 10 to 26, that what we see God doing is that God keeps a promise. He keeps a promise. That, that God promised that He would send a Redeemer, and this Redeemer, this offspring of the woman, going back to Genesis 3.15, that, that proto-euangelion, that first gospel promise that God would, would send this offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise His heel. And so this, this, this offspring of, of Eve who would come one day and would defeat Satan and would bring salvation. And so this, this genealogy is showing that in, in spite of, of humankind's serpent-inspired rebellion against God, God is keeping His promise to provide that serpent-crushing seed. And He's going to keep His promise. And nothing's going to stop that. And so, it's a powerful message in this genealogy. That though it looks like the, the world is again, once again, and we've seen this over and over already in Genesis, the, it's like the, the world has come completely unraveled because of sin. 
And yet God is still keeping His promise. And it's, and, 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 and it's a strong thread that's going to run throughout the Bible. And nothing will break it. And then at the end of the chapter here, the, 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 we really begin to turn and, and zero in and point us to Abraham, which is where we're going to see in chapter 12, this great promise made to Abraham. But we're going to see at the end of the chapter that God also, He creates a nation. He creates a nation. This is all God's doing. It's, it's God's purpose to call a man and his wife and, and from them to build this family. And from that family to build a nation. And from that nation, God would bless the ends of the earth. All the nations of the world. And so that's, again, what we're going to see starting in verse 1 of chapter 12 and through the rest of the book. And so from start to finish, what these ending verses of Genesis 11 are, it's it's just saying it's all a work of God's sovereign grace. It's all, it's all His doing. God calls, God calls Abram and Sarah out of this idol-worshiping family. Idol-worshiping culture. It's not that He looks at them and says, Man, these are people that I could really use. There's some good stuff here. And, and I can work with that. No, God just snatches them out of idolatry. And, and they're this barren couple. They, they, ha- they can't have kids. And here's the guy that's supposed to be the father of nations. And, and so God re- God's going to reveal his greatness, the greatness of his grace and his power and his glory. And then he's going to turn Abram into Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so, so, this, so what I want you to see, just this whole chapter, it's just pointing to and putting the spotlight on God's, God's work. God's doing. And so I know it's easy to, we get into in the beginning of, of chapter 11 and we're saying, man, look at, man, look at how bad they are. Look at, look at, they're, they're like charging the, the heavens and they're, they're trying to overthrow God and look how great man is and all that he has got. That's not the point. It's God. It's what he's doing and, and God's work. And so man is, again, man, anytime he raises himself against God, God will bring him low. That's, the, that's the, what we're going to see. Man's, God's thwarting man's plans. God's keeping his promise. God is making a new nation. And so back up now, verses 1 to 9. Roger, Teresa, good to have you here today. I just uh, saw I didn't see you come in earlier. Uh, dear brother, pastors of Berean Bible Baptists, and so thankful to have you guys in the congregation. So we have, a lot of, we have other guests today. I don't want to miss anybody. I know the horsemen are here. Glad to have you guys back. Been in Texas for a while and uh, 18 months or so passing through on their way to Maine. Did you know Atlanta was on the way to Maine? I didn't, but uh, when, you're in, when you're in San Antonio it is, I guess. But yeah, it's good to, good to see you guys too. Um, Genesis chapter 11, one, verses 1 to 9 is where we're going to give our attention. And so <laughs> man, may, man may plan and, and work in defiance against God and, and rebellion against God, but God will accomplish his purpose in spite of man's rebellion. That's the, that's the big picture here. So let's first, let's see this rebellion of humanity in verses 1 to 4. We'll see this. Look at verse 1 with me again. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. I'll read that and we'll say, sounds great. I mean, what's the, what's the problem? I mean, this is like a John Lennon song. Imagine, you know, imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. I mean, this sounds great. One language, everybody's able to communicate. All together and 
traveling, and I mean, this is like a road trip, you know, to Maine or something, you know, Shinar. Um, but they, they, they have the same language, okay, that's great, but they also share something else in common. They have the same nature. There's sin is, is traveling with them in their hearts, stowed away in every human heart, and so... Now, just back up. We were in chapter 10 last week, chapter 9 and 10, and we looked at that table of nations, that long genealogy in chapter 10. And, and one of the, the uh, kind of the, the, the focuses within that genealogy is on a guy named Nimrod. Remember, I said, don't name your kids Nimrod. Well, all right, remember, he's the mighty hunter before the Lord, but that's not uh, some talking about archery skills or something like that. Uh, Nimrod's name means we will rebel. We will rebel. Again, don't name your kids. Um, so he's this violent, rebellious descendant of Ham. Ham's line is the line that becomes cursed. And so, so what we saw in that uh, genealogy of chapter 10 is that Shinar it becomes Nimrod's region. And Babel becomes his sort of pet project. His little building project. And so he wanted, to, he wanted to build an empire in defiance of God. We will rebel. And so here's the scene. Noah and his family, they've, they've come off of the ark. Uh, God's preserved them through the flood. They've come off the ark. They were told by God, just like Adam and Eve were told by God, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And so they're to have lots and lots of babies and, and they're to spread across the planet. That's, that was the charge. But apparently, that didn't really happen. And so it seems that this new civilization, after they get off the ark, they just kind of stay put. They stay relatively close to the ark in that same geographical area. They don't move very far. They remain clustered together. And they're all, again, they're all speaking the same language. And they're, they're just together. And so, so then there's this successful campaign to to get everyone to move and settle in this new empire you know to settle in babel you can just see the billboards along the side of the roads and you know brochures plastered all over uh the camps and stuff like that go let's let's settle in babel and so you you can tell from verse four that it's it's promoted under this this guise of of kind of human betterment I mean, this will be good. We'll, we'll make a better world, a, a world that's safer for us there. We can be protected in the city. We, we'll make a great name for ourselves. I mean, it sounds, sounds good. It sounds attractive. It sounds exciting. It sounds smart. And, and it works. This is what happens. So, so, but there's a major problem with this. It's not good, and it's because this, it's done in defiance of God, in disobedience of God. They wanted the good life, they wanted a good life for themselves and for their families and for civilization, but they wanted it on their own terms, in their own way, apart from God, and in opposition to God. Because God said, go, scatter, fill the earth, and here they say, cluster together, and they said, no, let's stay, let's stay. Verse 3, and they said to one another, Come, (coughs) let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and and bitumen for mortar, pitch for mortar. 
And so apparently there were no stones in the area to use for construction and to build their new city and to build their you know new tower. And so they developed essentially this new technology, these kiln-dried bricks. And they used this pitch for to, to, to hold everything together and to cover everything. And it's, it's, we say, brilliant, right? I mean, this is, this is human ingenuity, human advancement, human achievement. This is, this is, this is genius. But it, it's interesting, isn't it, that that detail is even given. Like, what? what? In, in nine verses, we have a passage that is one of the key passages in the Bible for explaining the way things are in the world today. And of those nine verses, one of them focuses on making bricks. And how they did it. Why is that? It's details given about them making bricks because there were no stones. It's given because it showed their pride and their confidence in themselves. And this is like we can do anything. We can do anything we put ourselves to. We can we can overcome any challenge. The, the only limit that's going to restrain us is 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 our own imaginations. I mean, we we've got this. Onward we go with progress and this is this is the picture here we and and we'll come back to this statement in, in, in just a moment but this is this is this repeated this became kind of like a, a cliche that was repeated often oh come they said to one come let us make bricks and this is this is what we do we 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 overcome things it's just like genesis 4 remember cain and his descendants God says, go, but you're going to be, you're going to be, <coughs> you need to go and you don't settle anywhere and you just go. And instead they go and he settles and he, and he comes up with all of these incredible technologies and, and music and, and, and uh, metal and, and all of these, all of these wonderful technological advances. It's all of this progress, but again, it's progress without God. And here we have the same thing. Again, it's Cain all over. <coughs> Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So now we, we get not only to see what they're doing, we get to, get to get a little picture of why they're doing this. What's going on with this? They're, they're, there's, these, there's these connections here in, the, in that verse. They're, they're building a city lest they be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I think those correspond to one another. And they're building a tower to make a name for themselves. That's how those statements relate. So there are these two things that are motivating them. Fame and fear. Fame and fear. There's this love of praise and there's this love of security. And these things are really driving them in this building project. And so the emphasis in the text, it's not on... We're not told how tall the tower is. We're not told, you know, what it looked like or anything. We're not given those details, how big it is. The emphasis is, is the heart behind the tower. This is why they're doing it. And that's what is really important for us to see. And so first, we, we see this, this, this thirst for fame, love of praise. I mean, the intent behind building a tower with its top to... To the, into the heavens. It's not to get closer to God because they love Him so much and they want to be with Him and they want to be near Him and they want to commune with Him. That's not it. It's not this God-centered ambition. It's not a God-centered project. It is, it is, is man who is at the center of this tower project. 
This is for themselves. It's for their own name. They're, they're trying to make a name for themselves through their own achievements, through their own effort. And in so doing, they're not just dishonoring God and disobeying God. They're actually, in a sense, displacing God. That's their effort. That's their desire. I mean, this is just raw, undiluted pride. What is pride? Pride's, pride is misplaced glory. It, it's, it's seeking not glory that's due to God alone, but it's seeking, it's seeking to glorify ourselves. And this is what they, they want to make a name for themselves. So this is the root of sin itself, isn't it? I mean, this is mankind's dilemma. It's, I want to make a name for myself. This is what's behind so much, it, it, it is, it, so many problems in the world. It's this very thing. It's pride. And what is, what is it that causes pride? What is pride fueled by? It's fueled by what you call spiritual amnesia. We forget. We forget. I mean, willful forgetfulness. Not like, ah, I forgot where I left my keys. But we choose to forget. Their pride is it's about forgetfulness. So is ours. I mean, the only way you can talk and act and think like they are here in this passage is if you've forgotten who you are, who God is, and why He made you. And this is exactly what they've done. I mean, have they forgotten where they came from? Have they forgotten that God made them out of dust? They are creatures. They are, they are, they're made to bear the image of God to reflect His glory, not to, not to draw attention to their own supposed glory. That, that they are dependent upon God as creatures. Have they forgotten that? Have they forgotten who God is? What God is like? Have they forgotten the power that God displayed in wiping the world out through the flood? And, and also forgotten His love that, that, he, that He preserved, not just a family, but preserved His promise through that catastrophe. Have they, have they forgotten these things? That, that, that's the only way they could make this boast. Let's make a name for ourselves by building the tower. I mean, we are, man, again, man is made in the image of God to reflect God's glory, but instead we thirst for praise and we want to make a name for ourselves. God's design and will for us is not that we find joy in ourselves being praised, but that we find joy in knowing and praising and glorifying God. That's, that's, how, that's why we were made. But this is, this is this pride, this, this thirst for fame, this... this Love of praise. It's fueling this project. But <coughs> in spite of all this bravado, oh, look at us. We're building a tower. We're going to make it go to the heavens and look what we can do. And we work together and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pull together. We're going to forget what God says and forget what He told us. We're going to do this in defiance against God. We're going to displace God. In spite of all of that bravado, what do we see? There's, this, there's also this underlying sense of fear. Anxiety. That they feared. They feared being scattered over the face of the earth. They feared dying alone and unknown without a great name for themselves. And so that's a second motivator here. It's, it's love of security. It's, it's fear. If, if, if um, that love of praise and fame is misplaced glory, then fear is misplaced hope. Or misplaced trust. 
instead of putting our hope, our trust, our confidence in, in, in security in God, they, they, we trust ourselves. We trust in ourselves. This is exactly what they're doing. They say, let's, let's build this city, lest we be dispersed and scattered over the whole face of the earth. And so the, the city is this symbol of, of, of safety, of protection. You have the walls and you have the, the protection of being together in the collective community. And so there's this protection that they're, they're clinging. And in this case, it's not just a statement of safety, it's a statement of, of, of autonomy. Because we're doing this without, we don't need you, God. We've got this, and we, we can, we're okay without you. There's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with cities. Uh, there's nothing wrong with towers. There's nothing wrong with, you know, in our day, alarm systems or bars on the windows or whatever it is that we're, we're looking to. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves, but when you find your ultimate hope and security in a city rather than God, that's a problem. And this is what they're doing. They're saying essentially, God, we don't need you. We'll be fine by ourselves. Uh, we, we have what we need on our own. We're stronger without you than we, are, um, than we are scattered with you. We're stronger here without you than we are scattered with you. But God's, God's will for, for us, for, his peop- for people, is not that we find our security in cities or anything else, but, but in Him. Now, listen friends, this... this Heart of Babel is in all of us as well. I mean, this is the this is the uh, the story of our lives. We we too love we love security. We 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 too misplace our trust and our confidence all the time. And so much of what we do as believers, it's constantly. It's why we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time. And this is one of the big reasons we gather on the on the Lord's Day. It's why we celebrate communion. It's constantly point us back to Christ and our securities in Him. It's not in ourselves. Because this is our default mode and we're constantly drawn back to that, even as believers. And so maybe we, we hope in money or the things that money can buy. Maybe that's where our trust is misplaced. Financial health, financial strength and stability. And that's what we think. And I mean, Paul says something about that in First Timothy 6. He tells Timothy to warn uh, to warn those who are rich in this world not to set their hope, what? On the uncertainty of riches. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Money is not certain. It's not. He says instead, put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he goes on to say that we're to do good and we're to be generous and we're to give and, and to trust that God will provide for our needs. And, and so why is it, brothers and sisters, we're not generous and we're not, we don't give, we're not generous with our money, and with our possessions, because we want to hold on to them. We put our security and trust in those things and we find that, that financial strength is, is, is a way in which we misplace trust. And so there's this perceived sense of control when we surround ourselves with financial stability. Again, I'm not, I'm not, not against financial stability. That's not my point. But it, it can be, it's, this, it's a false sense if that's what we're looking for for our hope and security. That's one way. I mean, maybe it's another thing. Maybe you're putting your hope in others and people. And maybe it could be in a, in a, on a large scale and you're hoping in politicians, hoping in the government, hoping in a nation. And, and you're, you're all in with that. 
And so if, if that ever crumbles, if America ever ceases to exist, you think, where is the hope? Our hope is in God. We're hoping in your employer, in your company. And if it crumbles, where, where are you then? Hoping in some other relationship. You're, maybe you're over-dependent upon a, a person and all your security is tied up in that person. Friends, Jesus calls us to trust Him. And, and, he, and he calls us to be willing to let everything go, even, even relationships, if, 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 if needed, to cling to him for our security. Or maybe you're trusting in, in things that God uses, the, the chariots and the horses. And so we, we're, we're to trust in God, but, but, but we know that he often does use means. He uses chariots, he uses horses, even though we're to trust in the Lord or, or whatever their equivalent is in our, in our day. And so we can easily begin to shift our hope from God to the things that God often, that, that God uses, the means that he uses. And so it can be things like I'm hoping in, in my record of, of church attendance, surely everything will go well if I'm just, if I have like a, you know, 90% attendance record this year or something like that. Or if I, if I do enough, if I, get involved in the small group and, and I'm there or if I host one, man, I'm big time. I am good. And so my hopes in, in these things of God, these are good things. They're means that God uses in your life for, 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 to, 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 to provide for you. But our hope is not in those things. It's got to be in God. There's an illustration of this in, in Scripture. We'll, we'll see this. Uh, but remember Moses, he lifts up the, the bronze serpent in the desert and so all these people are getting bitten by snakes and vipers and stuff like that, and, and he lifts up the servant, and if they look at that bronze serpent, they they were healed after they were bitten by these you know desert vipers. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Um, but God healed them, and he, and he used means. He used that bronze serpent, and them casting their eyes to that serpent. Now fast forward in their history. And you get to Second Kings chapter 18. You, in Hezekiah's time, the people are they're actually making offerings to that pole. It's, just in, it's become this, this idol for them. And so they're making offerings to the pole. So Hezekiah, he just smashes the thing to pieces. And, 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 and so I just, the, the don't put your hope in things. Place your hope in God and Him alone. That's the, that's the appeal. And so what we're hoping in, how, how do we sometimes, how are... How is it revealed to us what we're truly hoping in? It's sometimes hard for us to decipher. Where might I have misplaced trust? Where might I have misplaced hope? Um, It often is revealed to us when hardship comes, isn't it? When times of suffering come. When things aren't going the way we think they should go. And then it's like this, you know... Uh, blue light is, is, or black light is put over us and we see all those specks and all the stains that we didn't see before. Where do we, where do we turn when trouble comes? First Peter, he, he, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, casting your anxiety, anxieties upon Him for He cares for you. So what that's saying is when, among other things, when, when we're eaten up with anxiety and fear, when things aren't going well and we're just consumed with fear and worry, it's revealing pride in our hearts. It, it, and those are connected. This fear and this, this love of security and love of praise, they're connected. Because when I'm anxious, I think I'm in control. You know, or, or I think I've lost control that I deserve and should possess. So that's when I get anxious. So I, I'm in a hard situation. Like I don't know what to do. 
I, I, if, if I do the wrong thing, ah, what might happen? And so this is, this is a struggle when we get into those difficult spots. And humility, though, says, I'm not in control. I'm not. My life is in God's mighty hands, and He cares for me. And I believe this. And there's a peace that comes in that. So that's the first thing. We, we see this rebelliousness in, in mankind here to, uh, played out in these first four verses of, of chapter 11. There's a, there's a lot, but there's so much in, this, in these nine verses. It's a great passage. And, and I, again, I try not to do this often, but in the Hebrew text itself, there are all of these beautiful word plays and things that are drawn out. Even you take, I, I don't remember how the New American Standard, I had a conversation with, uh, or through Brooke, I had an uh, exchange with Joan Rape, who's teaching the children this week at VBS. It says that they, 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 they migrated from the east in verse 2. Other translations may say they've migrated eastward. And, and so were they coming from the east or were they moving eastward? It really doesn't matter. But, but that word east in, in, in Genesis and in other parts of the scriptures as well, it is a theological word. The geography is theology here, and, and I don't think this is by accident. And, and even if they're traveling westward, he, he states it like this, from the east, because it's communicating something. East is always distance from God. They're, they're, so what do you have when Adam and Eve sin, and they're expelled from the garden, and God puts this angel at the eastern gate? When Cain it, it goes away in, in rebellion, where does he go? He goes east. It's always, it's always eastward. When people are running from God and rebelling against God. And, and so this is, it's people are going, they're going eastward, they're going from the east, but it's this, it's this little marker saying, this is not good. They're, 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 this is in defiance against God. And so this whole scene, because of their love for fame, because of their love for security, they're, they're, they're rebelling against God. This is in direct defiance against God, trying to displace God. And what is God going to do about it? Has God kind of lost the reins here and said, oh no, this has gotten out of hand, and, and what do I do? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs. The story, again, it, it's skillfully written, and it's driving this main point. So let's see God's response in verses 5 to 9. And, and remember last, when we were in the flood narrative, I, I talked about the structure of that whole story. It's, it's like you could divide the, the flood narrative in half, and the first half was sort of a mirror image of the second half. And, and there's fancy chiastic structure that we talk about in Hebrew language. But the same thing is happening here in these verse, first nine verses. And so verse 1 and verse 9 correspond to each other. And you can, you can see this, I think, very simply. Verse 2 and verse 8 correspond to each other. Verse 3 and verse 7. So you get down to the middle, and the very center of this passage, the hinge of the text, is verse 5. And it's this. It's God acting. The Lord came down. It's, that's the blazing center of this passage. It's what God is doing. God comes down. And so the spotlight in this whole passage is what God does to accomplish His purpose in spite of man's rebellion. The Lord came down. The Lord responded. And notice that the, the, the Lord has to, has to come down in order to uh, supposedly to, to see their supposedly massive building project. Massive city, massive tower that they build. God has to come down to, to see it. It's not because God is 
old and nearsighted and nearsighted, I don't know, farsighted, whichever one it is where you can't, I don't, I don't know. But it's not that he, he doesn't see, that he doesn't know what they're doing down there, anything like that. This is satire. Usually, we call it anthropomorphism. We're putting a, a human attributes to God. And so it, God is coming down, but it's, it's holy scorn. This is God laughing at them. Proud men, they're building this tower whose top is, they think, in the, is, is touching heaven. This is how they're thinking. And, but God, who is truly high and exalted, has to actually come down, get really low, in order to even see it. And so it's, it's too tiny of a speck from his lofty vantage point to even see it. So he has to come down to look it over. It's like, it's like God having to stoop down, uh, you know, like, like a man. Let's say you drop a little, you know, little screw off of your glasses or something like that. And you've you got to get down on your hands and knees. And you're like looking down at the floor to see it. I mean, that's the image. Like God is it's so tiny. I can't see it. So I come down. This great tower. It's just microscopic. Because what? This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. The, the infinitely transcendent God of whom Isaiah will later say in Isaiah 40, 22, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. I mean, this magnificent, glorious, transcendent, high and exalted Lord. And so there's something else in verse 5 that it's again, it's just showing that this passage that God is putting man in this place, not in a vindictive way, but in, we're going to see in a gracious way. The, the Lord came down, again in verse 5, the Lord came down, that's the center, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Children of man. That's an expression. It's, it's one, it's doing a couple things. It's underscoring their mortality, that they are creatures, they're not gods. But it, it could also be translated, we, said, we talked about this last time, it could be translated sons of Adam. It's, the man is Adam, Adam. They're, they're showing that their rebellious activity is right in line with their father, Adam. Their sinful nature of Adam is in them. And brothers and sisters, it is in us too. In all people. So what is God's assessment after coming down to look? Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now I know we read that and we think, Oh my. Listen, this is not God being threatened by them and their achievements. God's just a speck. It's not God wringing his hands saying, oh no, if they band together, uh, I, I mean, I won't be able to stop them. They'll be, in, they'll be invincible. That's not what's happening. What is this? This is God acknowledging the danger to themselves, to humanity itself, of, of a unified, self-confident humanity. God is looking and he's troubled about what would happen if, if humanity was left to go unchecked. They would continue to build up this delusion of self-sufficiency and of pride through their, their man-centered security and their man-centered false religion. And, and, it, and so God intervenes and, and it's because He doesn't want in their delusion for them to, to, to fail to acknowledge God. 
And so God acts. And remember verse 3, they said, the people that are building, they said, come, let us make bricks. Again, the mirror image of that is verse 7. Those correspond, and what do you see? God speaking now. And it's, a, it's a, it, verse 3 and verse 7, that expression, it's almost identical in Hebrew. It's this little wordplay, just the one letter off. And so they say, come, let us make bricks. In Hebrew, it doesn't, it doesn't work in English. But it's, it's almost identical in sounding to what God says. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So they, they, they're boasting, ah, we can do anything we want. God says, just going to confuse their language. And then they're going to be scattered all over the earth. It's nothing. It's child's play. They just, let's confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This, again, this pow, proud, chest-pounding, boast of man. We build bricks and God just pff, disposes of man's efforts. So the, the, the response from God here, it's one of both justice and mercy. It's, it's, it's punishment and it's gracious intervention at the same time. That the thing they feared, being scattered over the face of the earth, is, is the very thing that they're going to experience. And God does this by confusing their languages. I'm not exactly sure what that was like for them to experience this initial judgment. Uh, I don't know, would it be like Brooke and I, if we were living in that day talking one day, and we're talking about, you know, discussing our contribution to the Tower Fund, and that we're going to make some, you know, pledge and get a, you know, buy a brick or something like that, and get our plaque on it, you know, in, in our own honor, that kind of a thing. Uh, and we're talking about that and, and, and discussing And while as we're talking, the judgment of God comes on earth and then psh, all of a sudden she starts speaking Spanish and I'm still speaking English. And like, wh- what, are you, what are you saying? I don't understand. What are you talking about? And she can't comprehend what I'm saying anymore. And, and is, was it like that? I don't know. And then, you know, Carson, Carson comes up and he's speaking some Scandinavian language or something like that. And, Callie, I don't know what she's talking, but uh, 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 Australian uh, or something weird like that, exotic. <laughs> Paul Bell, if you're listening, that was for you. Um, no, but what? What? So, we, so you, but somehow these languages that they're they're confused and and there's this distortion. Whether it was all instantaneous or whether it's this kind of this disruption and confusion and the understanding comprehension. And slowly people start kind of separating and segmenting. I mean, this is one of the phenomena. I think it explains the phenomenon of how there's so many different languages, but there's there also there's this relationship between languages. I think this all goes back here. But over to happen, the languages are confused, and they start grouping together with others that they can better understand. And, and so there's this massive barrier that's put into the system of the world. Uh, Different languages. I mean, we have today some 6,500 or so uh, different languages spoken in the world today. And so whenever you see people at the United Nations with little headsets on, listening to the translation of whatever being, whatever's being communicated, just remember, remember Babel. And, and, and that this is, and know that God is exalted over proud man. That's what that's communicating. And what, so what's the effect of this? Verse 8, quickly. So the Lord, notice again, God's in charge of this. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. God stopped their work. It was God's doing. And so they're basically forced to obey the command that they had previously refused to obey. And now they're going to scatter and fill the earth. So and with these different languages come these different people groups, different 
Nations, groupings of people, they're not going to be able to unite again because of that common language. And, and so now language and geography are going to begin to separate people. Again, God's, God's scattering here is both punishment and, it's, and also, it's also preventative. It's judgment and it's grace. The thousands of languages of the world and the thousands of different people groups of the world, they're, they're, they, they limit and restrain the um, potential for evil. That's what, what this is doing. Limit the, kind of the global aspirations of proud humanity. And so Moses concludes verse 9, Therefore its name was called uh, Babel, because there the Lord, again, the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. So the reason we have so many different languages and different people groups is not, it can't be explained by natural reasons or causes. It is by divine doing. See, and again, there's another little, another little uh, uh, bit of holy scorn here in verse nine. There's a little wordplay. Uh, again, Nimrod, his descendants, they called they called Babel the, the the gate of the gods. That was what it was. How it was translated in their language. God renames. He calls it confusion. It's Babel or Balal. There, there's a, just one little letter difference between Babel and, and confusion, and so. So they, they, yes, they end up making a name for themselves, but it's not the name that they wanted. Yeah, they are called confusion. And so again, the whole point of this is when, when people set themselves against God, God wins. Always. There's this dynamic in the story of man's sin, man's rebellion. There's volitional choices that man makes to defy God and to disobey God and to go against God and try to displace God. So that man is, man is working, man is plotting, man is, is scheming, and yet God is acting and He's over all of man's scheming and He's accomplishing His purposes for His glory. There's this... Wonderful dynamic here. And so God's permitting this rebellion and he's, and he's economizing man's wickedness for his own glory and our eternal good. And we see this in, in other places in Scripture. And, and so uh, the greatest example of this kind of thing is the cross. As Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's talking, uh, he's getting to the kind of the crux of the message and he says, this Jesus who, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God delivered up to be crucified according to the definite plan foreknowledge of God this is God's eternal purpose this is the then he turns around and says you killed him he was he was crucified at the hands of lawless men it's your sin you did this and yet God was orchestrating his plan through it we see this we see this throughout scripture and this is certainly on display here and so I want to just end with a couple statements We'll just be able to state them, basically. Very little explanation. But how can the sin at Babel and the judgment that resulted from it uh, serve to magnify the glory of Christ? I'm, I'm, I, I was helped here by uh, a message that John Piper preached, and so I'm adapting a few of his uh, statements here. But let me just give you some ways that this is, this is further. One is that Christians are protected. Christians are protected in the sense that that this is a means of God's protecting his people from, from some kind of global, united, pagan, anti-God state. Super state. Where they would, they would have the power to wipe Christians off the face of the planet. I know we think in terms of uh, world missions that all these languages, all these different cultures, it's a hindrance to world missions. And it is, it is an obstacle. Learning language, learning Bosnian, learning Arabic, learning 
uh, Wolof and French. Those are challenges, learning cultures, learning customs. But in another, in another sense, it, that, that this, this is, um, this is a, a grace of God that we have 6,500 languages. People are spread. Or, or the, the threat against Christianity would be greater. Second, pride is pummeled. I wish we could linger. Ah, this is hard. I can't summarize this one. But um, we just say, when you get into the book of Revelation, we're going to see that the, the, the Antichrist is going to come, this man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in Thessalonians. And he's, he's, going, to, he's going to rise up in the, in the last days. And, and there's, there's going to be this one united great government. It, the God's going to loosen his restraint on on this and and there's going to be this government that forms and 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 believers are going to be martyred during this period and persecuted everywhere around the earth and and so it's and and what's the name of the city of the beast in the book of revelation babylon it's the same word babel is translated more often in scripture as babylon and 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 so it's going to one day be filled with the blood of martyrs. But just like the, just like the Tower of Babel was destroyed, it's going to be wiped out. And so you, you get this picture in Revelation 18 of Babylon. And there, there's, their sins are heaped up. But there's, there's this proud boast. Nobody can, can take us down. We, we, we are this great, mighty city. And, and, and nothing's going to bring us low. And then what do you find? The Lord, that this Babylon is raised up. This great, unified people are raised up at the end. And God just... That Christ comes and with the breath of his mouth he wipes them out. And it's this, it's this way of that, 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 that God is using even the sinfulness of man to bring glory to his name. Uh, we, we see these images of in the, in the Great Commission all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So part of God's plan is to bring glory to his name by uh, as disciples are made from every nation. So every people group is claimed. The gospel shines bright. This is part of what God is doing. Um, Romans 1.16, that the, the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, so the, the gospel, it's not, it's, it's not nationalistic. It's not provincial. It's not regional. It is, it is not some kind of tribal religion. It breaks into every language and people group. And this serves for the glory of God. And then the, the culmination of this is the fact that Jesus is praised by this. And so the praise that Jesus receives from all of the different nations is more beautiful than the praise he would have received if there was just one people. And this diversity ends up serving as this glorious picture and glorious eternal song. And so you have these images in Revelation first, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then in chapter 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is one of our VBS memory verses. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is where it's moving. And so... Out of this, what looks like man uh, kind of sticking it to God, it's just God's like, no, no, I am, I am, I am going to 
exploit this rebelliousness of man's heart and I'm going to use it for my eternal glory and it's all going to culminate in my son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a passive God. Yes, you are transcendent, but you are not detached. You are, you are working not just in Genesis 11. You were not at work. You are at work today. You are still preserving your promise. You are still preserving your people. You're still protecting. You're still, you're still stopping and thwarting man's plans. You're still restraining evil. You're still doing it all um, for the glory of Christ. And so I, I pray that you would, that the, this message of this text would sink down into our hearts, Father. That we thank you for the, the fact that though the, the, the people of Babel, they spent their blood, their tears, their effort frantically trying to build this tower to you. That God, you were, you were willing to come down to them. And, and we, we, we cannot save ourselves. How pathetic that is to attempt that. We can't work our way to you. Lord, you, you came down to us. Um, and, and that is the unique glory of the gospel, that God, you in Christ and your Son, you came down to us in the incarnation, dwelt among us, walked among us without sin, and you were raised up on the cross to die for us, make full atonement, rose from the dead, and now reign. And, and so we thank you that you didn't sit idly by. You, you worked, you acted supremely in your Son. And we, we are the beneficiaries of that great work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.